Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan, and as always, I will be your host for this episode. Thanks to everyone who has checked out this podcast and listened to a majority of the episodes. I know not every episode is going to appeal to everyone, which is why I try to change up the time era, type of crime, and location as much as I can. Today's episode is going to focus on the gradual descent of the mind of one of the richest men in the world 40 years ago. We talk a lot about the link between mental health and crimes like murder, and often the suspect has limited resources in order to seek help. That will not be the case in today's story, but before we get to that, let's get to the business. If you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you'd like to email the host directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. If you can, please support the show via Patreon. Any donation level helps, and it'll help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out from the host and a thank-you message. Also, for no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Thanks so much. Without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. While many people have heard of the DuPont Chemical Company, not many people know it was built thanks to the poor quality of American gunpowder during the time period after the Revolutionary War. In 1800, a 30-year-old Frenchman named Eleuthère Irene Dupont de Namois arrived in America with his family to escape the horrors of the French Revolution and religious prosecution. The intelligent and well-educated Dupont had studied over, under one of France's brightest scientists, Antoine Lavoisier, a master of chemistry and well-versed in the art of making gunpowder. Dupont had not come to America to make a fortune with gunpowder, but as legend has it, while on a hunting trip in Delaware in 1800, he was shocked when his hunting partner's gun failed to go off due to poor powder. Dupont requested a tour of the gunpowder factory that had manufactured the powder, and he realized the techniques used to refine the powder were substandard to what he had learned in France. A year later, having raised enough capital, Dupont acquired land along Brandywine Creek and built a gunpowder factory. By mid-1850, his gunpowder was being used across the country, and by the Civil War, his gunpowder was used by approximately 40% of the Union forces. The company's empire grew into the 20th century with focus on dynamite and smokeless powder. In the 1920s and 30s, the company expanded into the new field of nylons and polymers and by World War II, they were supplying parachutes and tires for the war effort and also contributed efforts for the Manhattan Project. DuPont continued to grow via the space race and development of materials such as Tyvex, Mylar, and Kevlar, giving rise to the bullet-resistance vests in use today. It has been a top 100 company in the Fortune 500 and has manufacturing interest in almost all areas of science. The company has funded the lives of many employees, shareholders, and executives over the years, but the direct descendants of DuPont have benefited the most over the last 200 plus years. One of those descendants, John DuPont, led an interesting life, but his sad spiral into mental illness eventually landed him in court charged with murder. This is the story of Foxcatcher and Dave Schultz's tragic death. 
John DuPont was born on November 22, 1938, to William DuPont Jr. and Jean Leister Austin. Born in Philadelphia, he grew up on his family's 800-acre horse farm and estate in Newton Square, Pennsylvania. The land and buildings were a gift to his parents by his grandfather, William DuPont Sr., as a wedding gift. The three-story mansion on the property was an exact replica of Montpelier, James Madison's Virginia estate. William DuPont Sr. had grown up at Montpelier and gifted the replica to his son and daughter-in-law. When John was just two years old, his parents divorced, and his mother kept the horse farm and estate, and John stayed with her. He had two older sisters and older brother, but they were many years his senior and didn't give him much attention at all. He was basically alone in the home, but eventually would become friends with a child of the family's chauffeur. It would later be revealed that this child was paid to be friends with John. John, being raised in luxury and isolation, was considered a very eccentric child. His mother supported his love of birds and collecting by commissioning some of the best ornithologists and taxidermists to build four large dioramas with birds, eggs, nests, and etc. on the third floor of the mansion. It was John's own museum, and he would show it off to classmates whenever he got the chance. School did not go well for John. He struggled with his studies, and he struggled to fit in with his fellow classmates. He graduated from high school in 1957, and then left the University of Pennsylvania after year one. His father paid for him to spend several years touring the world studying birds and their habitats. And then he used a small part of his family's fortune to found the Delaware Museum of Natural History around this time. This would eventually lead him to pursue a degree in biology, and he graduated from the University of Miami with a degree in zoology in 1965. His father passed away that year, leaving him full access to his share of the family fortune, which was his share was around 80 million or almost 800 million dollars today. While in college, he joined the swim team, and despite not being a gifted athlete, he made the varsity team. Although most believe his money bought his spot, John felt he was a good enough swimmer to try and join the nation's best swimmers at Santa Clara Swim Club. At the training ground for Olympic swimmers, John was by far the slowest member at the club, and his dreams of becoming an Olympic medalist seemed out of reach. But fellow team members eventually grew to like the eccentric young man and convinced him that with his background with horses and shooting, two things that he spent a lot of time with as a child, he could compete in the Olympic pentathlon. The five-event Olympic sport combines fencing, swimming, equestrian skills, running, and shooting. It is the most expensive sport to train for, but John had the money and put everything he had into trying to make the Olympic team. He had his own pentathlon course built at his mother's estate, complete with a new pool, shooting range, and a running trail. It would be on this course that he hosted the 1967 National Championships, and he would finish 14 out of 29 competitors. The following year, he tried out for the U.S. Olympic team, of which only three finalists were selected. John would finish 21st out of 22 competitors. With his Olympic dreams dead for the moment, John threw himself back into his studies and obtained a doctorate in natural science from Villanova University in 1973. 
It was around this time that he was thrown from a horse and hit a fence, and the resulting injury meant the loss of both of his testicles. The museum he founded opened its door around this time, and he served on the board and gave himself the title of director. John would also make the U.S. Olympic team in the pentathlon in 1976, but as a team manager. And we'll take a break here. Um, a lot of this is going to be about John because his life was just so different than what anybody else would have experienced. I mean, I talked about when his father passed away, he was basically at that point given the green light access to 800, what was considered $800 million today. So if you can imagine it's, it's almost like winning you know, the Powerball when it's over a billion dollars or whatever. This is not that his life has, he's ever wanted for money, but it's it's life-changing money for anybody else. But for, for him, at least, it gives him access to this money. I think before then, it was, the money was kind of in a trust. Yes, he had access to it. And yes, his parents wrote out massive checks for him whenever he wanted. But this was, you know, all of a sudden it became his money and he could spend it how he wanted. And reading between the lines and a lot of the source material everywhere he went money was given for his acceptance i guess is the best way to put it uh, there was talk of he would donate a ton of money to the local police department and then they let him come and shoot guns with them and do ride-alongs with them and hang out with them and it was said that his personal vehicle had a siren and a police scanner in it and he would drive around and they gave him some quote-unquote fake badges that looked real and he would identify himself as a cop everywhere he went and he had no police training no formal training or education or anything along those lines but Again, everywhere that he went, his money bought him into whatever club, organization, and, and it started with him being a very young child, and basically his only friend was bought for him. And again, this theme is going to keep coming up his entire life. Uh, when he basically gets bored with college, uh, he goes on this three-year trip and he's studying uh, the Pacific birds and like the Philippines and Australia and and uh, Indonesia and this kind of stuff and he's collecting birds and it said he identified 12 new species of birds but the whole time his father had paid for one of the world's foremost experts in, in Pacific migratory birds or something along those lines to go along with them and basically that guy, I'm assuming, was making all the discoveries, but then John was taking credit for it. Uh, so, again, like everything in his life, basically, he's not really working for it. And I wouldn't say that it's he, he built this training course and it said he trained very, very hard. And even for the, the swimming, it, you know, he, yes, he somewhat bought his way probably onto the, the swim team, but. It wasn't like he couldn't swim. He just wasn't a gifted athlete. He didn't have the size or the strength or anything like that, just naturally. But he did work hard. He did want to be a better swimmer. He, he tried. He just, like you said, didn't have that natural talent. It was the same thing with the pentathlon. Um, 
he his family actually you know with their money they supported uh or a, a huge horse breeding and horse racing program and that's actually where Foxcatcher comes in that's the name of the the horse farm that uh his that his parents had in the 20s and 30s and their one of their horses actually it's I don't know if it's in the movie Seabiscuit I think it is where uh there's one horse that the trainer or owner of Seabiscuit is told to watch out for and it's this horse from Foxcatcher Farms uh which is the DuPont family's uh, horse farm which is where John would eventually grow up uh, so he's, you know, he spends his entire childhood around horses, uh, said that, you know, he's got this 800 acres, so he likes to go out and shoot guns, so, and he loves to swim, so really, when it comes to the pentathlon, he has to learn how to fence, and he has to learn, uh, or has to become a better runner, because it's it's fencing, it's uh, horse jumping, equestrian uh, horse jumping, it's uh, swimming, and it's running, and it's shooting, so that's that's the five events, and and as it said, most people can't afford to train for this because you've got to have access to horses and a pool and shooting and, uh, you know, the running part's not difficult, but then fencing, you know, training. So instead of being able to really focus on just one training aspect, you have to have everything. And, and with the money that John had and the, the estate that he had, the access to horses, everything like that, this is, again, one his best chance of being able to make the Olympics and you know, he does okay. And I think it's said that he actually won some event in Australia. I want to say it was in like 1965 or something like that. And, but it would be later said it wasn't so much a reflection of how good John was at the time. It was just that the competition level in Australia for the pentathlon was not very high. So, Again, he could find ways to elevate himself or achieve things by using money that other people wouldn't be able to do for the most part. So, and this is kind of again a recurring theme throughout his life uh, as he as he grows up. It's basically if if he wants something or wants to be known for something, he gets out the checkbook and he writes a check. I think it was said right after he came into all of his fortune, his high school that he had gone to came to him and asked him for money. And he wrote them a million dollar check right on the spot. And this was again, like in the 19, I want to say sixties or so. And so, I mean, this, this is a big check for the school, but he, he said that the check came with stipulations and it was that, they had to promote his favorite teacher. They had to fire an English teacher that flunked him twice. And they had to put his name like really big on the side of the school or something like that. And when they said they weren't going to fire this teacher or whatever it was, he ripped up the check. So he was used to getting his way with money. And, and basically, he could use his fortune to get what he wanted uh, out of life for the most part. Uh, you know, it's like not like you could buy his way. But uh, but again, even with the being the Olympic team manager for the pentathlon, yes, he was well versed with the sport, he had trained in it, he had competed in it. Uh, but still, my guess is that there was some type of a check that was written to the US Olympic pentathlon or something along those lines that got him a spot in 1976 as as the team manager. I, I don't think it's something where they would have sought him out uh, 
and and put him on the team as a manager just if he didn't have the financial capabilities that he did. And it was the same thing with this museum, same thing that his mom did for him when he was a child. Uh, he, he shows interest in something, uh, and she was said to be very focused on the farm. She had some, some form of pony that she basically bred this this breed of pony that was a champion breed and she so she was focused on that like every day she'd be going down to the stables at the same time to check on the horses or the ponies and and then she had i think it was a breed of dog that she was that was a champion breed that she had that, was raised on the farm and she was involved in that and so she was very involved in her activities and when it came to John it was just easy for her to find somebody to build these dioramas and film make basically a little museum for John and that you know it wasn't like he was contributing to it but it became his and it's going to be the same way with this museum that he founds and eventually uh he names himself as, as the director and he hires the guy that would bring him around uh, the, for those years after he left college the first time around he hires that research guy to basically kind of run the museum the day-to-days and he pulls him away from wherever he was doubles his salary and then they have a falling out at some point and, and he fires uh, this guy and again, that's just kind of a common theme where he he buys loyalty, buys something into a situation, but then because of the way he acts, because of his lack of social skills or whatever it is, the relationship sours and, and whatever he had built kind of crumbles. So we're going to see that recurring theme as we go here. Now, the museum kept him occupied for a while, and in 1983, he married Gail Wenk, an occupational therapist he met while she was helping rehab his hand after a car accident. They lived together for six months, and John filed for divorce after 10 months of marriage, and Gail claimed John was an alcoholic who abused her and pointed a gun at her. He had told Gail he thought she was a Russian spy, and he threatened to blow her brains out. And this is kind of probably the first time a lot of people in the public or at least outside of John's inner circle realize that he's got some severe mental health issues. Uh, he he kind of started down this paranoid path and a lot of people put it around 1974 when Patty Hearst, the rich heiress, was kidnapped. Uh, you know, some people still believe that she was she voluntarily joined this uh, terrorist organization, but you know, the story is that she's kidnapped because of her wealth and eventually, whether it's Stockholm Syndrome or under threat, uh, she starts participating in the crimes of this terrorist organization. But anyway, the, the overall story of her being vulnerable because of her money, most people say this is when John kind of starts to become very security focused. And so after 1974, he installs a security fence around the family estate uh, said it was a, a like an eight foot fence with razor wire across the top and it had key card access gates and security cameras and by the 
late 80s, his fear had grown really into paranoia, and he hired full-time bodyguards, and it's said at this point he alienated himself from most of his old friends and associates. And it wasn't so much old friends. Is it kind of mentioned in the article I was reading that he didn't have contact with like the the police force anymore that he had donated so much of his time and money with. Uh, he just kind of cut all those ties, uh, stopped showing up at the museum, and basically as he kind of descended into his paranoia, you know, he would basically only be the people that he would allow into his life which were usually new people that he paid money to security consultants or eventually we're going to find out psychics and then eventually as we get into the wrestling portion of it he, he kind of left his old life behind and, and went down this new life but it's going to be filled with this paranoia and when john's mother's health started to decline in 1985 he decided to be to turn his soon-to-be inherited estate into an exclusive wrestling and swimming training grounds called Foxcatcher. And as I mentioned before, the name was taken from his father and mother's horse racing program from the 1920s and 30s. And his goal was to recreate something like the Santa Clara Swim Club, but for wrestling and use his money to build the best facilities and recruit the best talent in the world. His hope was that Olympic level athletes would come to his facility and to train and socialize and John would be the king of Foxcatcher. So if you can you know, recall he went to the Santa Clara Swim Club after leaving the University of Miami or, or during his time on the swim team at University of Miami. The, the, the timeline for things gets kind of goofy when you're reading the sources because it's going back 50, 60 plus years sometimes and, and multiple things are going on, multiple years are being used. But uh, basically when he decides he wants to do this attempt at Olympic swimming, the Santa Clara Swim Club, again, it's it's the best of the best U.S. swimmers are, are training here. Eventually, most of them are going to turn into Olympic-level athletes or world championship athletes. And he goes there, and he's just basically embarrassed by how slow that he is compared to everybody else. So his idea is he can create a similar atmosphere, but he does. He, he's at this point... A, he was never a good enough athlete in the first place, but B, he's too old to compete, but he's going to create these champions uh, through his facility and, and basically through whatever you want to call it, through proxy or whatever, he's going to have that pride, that prestige, and everything that comes along with it. And around the same time, he contributed a large sum of money to his alma mater, Villanova University, for a new athletic building, and then... Again, as whether you want to call it a kickback or payback or whatever it was, he was named the wrestling coach for the newly welcomed sport. So Villanova didn't have a wrestling program. He contributes a bunch of money so they can build this new athletic facility on the campus. And then all of a sudden he's named this the wrestling coach. And this he doesn't have a background in the sport. He likes the sport, but it's not like he was a... A wrestler in college he was a swimmer it's not like he wrestled at any point that anybody could find in his history it just he all of a sudden became fascinated with with wrestling and when i say wrestling this is college or olympic wrestling not professional wrestling for entertainment there's obviously a big difference between the two of them so he's finds this huge attraction to the actual sport of wrestling which was really growing in popularity uh during the the 70s and 80s in america and 
And part of that we'll talk about in a little bit. It's there's some of that Cold War stuff. It's a lot of the Eastern Bloc wrestlers. Same thing with the 1980 hockey team. Uh, hockey was a big us versus the Soviet Union deal. Whereas uh, in wrestling, it was very much that way too. So the best in the world at the time were from North America and then the Eastern Bloc countries. So as that tension, the Cold War, the rivalry between the two grew, uh, the sport did kind of as well, at least in terms of popularity. So John rides this popularity wave. He gets named wrestling coach at his alma mater for will and nova didn't have a wrestling team now they're going to have one and partially because he gave them the the money to build the facilities for one however the program folded after a short time uh, and this is mainly because of problems associated with john and the main two problems were john showing up intoxicated to work and then sexual assault allegations were leveled against him by members of his coaching staff and this is going to kind of come back. We'll talk about it more down the road, uh, how there continues to be these sexual assault allegations. And Villanova just kind of, I don't think they realized what they were getting into when they accepted his money to build this stuff. Maybe they did, but you know they kind of acquiesced to all of his requests until he became too big of a problem and then shut down the program, shut down, you know, got rid of him so they just didn't have to deal with, with the problems anymore. Now, when his mother passed away in 1988, it is said that John had no more system of checks and balances, and then he could run Foxcatcher with almost unlimited money, but with a quickly deteriorating mental state. And prior to his mother passing, he had lived in a guest house on the property, um, but it was within days of her death that he moved into the larger mansion. And then he immediately began inviting the best college level and Olympic wrestlers to come live with them. And this, I guess the staff felt that it was it was a pretty sore subject amongst the staff that so quickly after his mother passed, he basically just kind of moved in. I, I guess he got rid of some of her stuff that had been there forever and then replaced it with these cheap posters of wrestlers and sports stuff. And basically he kind of turned it into this bachelor pad after it had been this really well-maintained estate it was said that the horses like were quickly like the ponies were basically kind of put out to pasture meaning they weren't cared for in the stables they were just put out on out in the fields and then the he fired most of the staff and what staff remained just dropped bales of hay out in the pastures for the the ponies but they weren't cared for like they should be it was the same way i think with the dogs and the horses basically anything that she had run as soon as she passed away he got rid of the staff and turned the whole place from this 50 60 years plus legacy of of being this horse farm pony farm whatever into this kind of bachelor pad for for wrestlers and again it didn't sit well with the staff and John would let these guys live in rooms or on some of the houses on the estate for free. He would provide the wrestlers with food and anything they needed to train and gave them roughly $1,000 a month in a stipend. When they, when they competed, they earned bonuses for wins such as $5,000 for a national championship, $10,000 for a world championship, and $15,000 for an Olympic medal. So he's 
they're not living there full time from the sounds of it before a major competition before a world championship before an olympics before a national championship type of event these guys would come live there for two three weeks and just train and, and part of uh wrestling is obviously the the physical nature of it the the endurance to be out on the mat for the whole time but another part of it is is cutting weight so it was they're able to eat a specific diet while they were on so basically they didn't have to have any worry in the world they had access to the, the state-of-the-art uh, workout facilities and uh, nutrition and everything like that and they would basically just get themselves ready for an event and as an extra motivator I said John would pay them while they were there and then he'd also pay them if they won so he was he was basically obviously encouraging these wins so that he could attribute them back to his Foxcatcher program. In 1989, John was said to still be acting somewhat normal, and his only rule was a strict 7 p.m. dinner. And this would be a several course meal which was served every night, and the wrestlers had to inform John if they wouldn't be attending or were running late. And I say that his was acting somewhat normal. It's later said that he spent most of the 80s and 90s uh, extremely intoxicated he was an alcoholic and then he was on cocaine but at least from a standpoint of where he's gonna slip here in the future uh, most people said at least in 1989 he was he, you could be around him and that's gonna change pretty quickly within a couple years John's mental health started to decline he would be seen walking around the mansion staring at paintings or trophies and asking other people if if they had changed since the day before. And by 1992, John was hiring psychics to walk through the house and tell him if there were spirits haunting the mansion. He had extensive work done to the walls and roof because he felt someone was tunneling into the mansion and moving between rooms. Based on his erratic behavior, few of the men who lived at the estate dared to challenge John on his mental state. In fact, there was only one man who was said to be able to do so, and it was Dave Schultz. I don't know if it was because they were worried about being cut off financially. I mean, that probably had a big part to do with it, that if you challenged John, he'd kick you off the property and you couldn't come back. And for these wrestlers, I mean, this was this was a dream come true. They were quote-unquote amateur wrestlers. They, they, they couldn't make a ton of money off on their own with wrestling. They, they could coach and they could train and they could do all different things. Uh, for money but in reality when they came to Foxcatcher they were getting paid really good money for the time and then if they won these awards those were huge bonuses and so to cut yourself off financially from that because you were going to question John on his mental state it just I don't think it was worth it for most of these guys I don't know that they feared physically what he would do to them uh, but as I mentioned, there's one guy that could get away with, with calling him on, on his mental stuff, and that was Dave Schultz. And Dave Schultz was born on June 6, 1959, in Palo Alto, California. He and his brother, Mark Schultz, were hard workers and both became legends in the sport of wrestling. Dave won the California State Championship in 1977 and the National Championship while wrestling for the University of Oklahoma in 1982. 
He went on to win the world championship in 1983, an Olympic gold medal in the 1984 Olympics. And in total, he would win a combination of seven world and Olympic medals. Mark Schultz was born on October 26, 1960, and was a gifted gymnast in high school before turning to wrestling his senior year. And just like his older brother, he won the state title his senior year and would eventually go on to wrestle alongside his brother at the University of Oklahoma, and he won three national championships in 81, 82, and 83. He went on to win gold in the 1984 Olympics, but his win, like his brother's win in the Olympics, was overshadowed by the fact that Eastern Bloc countries, home to some of the world's best wrestlers, had boycotted the 1984 Olympics. However, he stunned the world by defeating those wrestlers in the 1985 World Championships. And so wrestling, college, Olympic wrestling, if most people don't know, uh, it's by weight class. Uh, It's not fair for a 100-pound wrestler to compete against a 200-pound wrestler. So that's why Dave and Mark, they're brothers, uh, and they're wrestling at different weight classes. Uh, Dave was kind of always a bigger guy. He was considered, I guess, pudgy, was made fun of for his weight when he was growing up. Uh, but eventually that weight turned into strength. Uh, but he was just always just just a heavier guy than his brother. And so Mark was able to wrestle at these lower weight classes while Dave wrestled at higher weight classes. And there's obviously national championship medals and gold medals at different weight classes. So that's how they can both win gold uh, in these same years whether it be the national championships or the olympics and this was again really a big deal at the time when uh, the eastern bloc countries boycotted the 1984 olympics it again anybody who because the eastern bloc country athletes were considered to be some of the best in the world at most of their sports because they were basically getting paid they're professional athletes but they were either members of the quote-unquote military so they they're they were maintaining an amateur status from their sport not not supposedly getting paid directly for their involvement in the sport but everybody knew uh, they were they were america's pro athletes in the eastern Bloc, but due to olympic rules the american pro athletes whether it be ones from the nhl or anything along those lines they couldn't compete per the olympic rules because they were getting paid to perform their sport and these were supposed to be amateur athletes so the eastern Bloc countries got away with having the best of their best often go up against amateur college kids and that's what made the 1980 miracle on ice such a big deal uh, when the U.S. defeated the USSR because it was literally David versus Goliath. It was the college kids that weren't getting paid to play hockey up against the best of of the Eastern Bloc countries that had that were getting paid to do nothing but play hockey 24/7. And it was the same way with wrestling. So that's why it was such a big deal when. Mark Schultz followed up his 1984 gold medal with beating these Eastern Bloc countries in 1985 because they didn't boycott the World Championship. So he actually wrestled through these Eastern Bloc countries and won the championship, beat the best in the world. And so it kind of anybody who said 
his Olympic gold medal did, didn't hold the same weight because he didn't beat these guys. Well, he did it in 85, beat those guys to show that hey, even had they not boycotted, he probably still would have won the gold medal in 84. And Mark was welcomed to Foxcatcher to train for the 1988 Olympics and help train other wrestlers. He was also given a paid job at Villanova to help coach wrestling, and eventually the relationship between John and Mark soured to the point John threatened to ruin his career. And this is because Mark felt that John treated him like a shiny new toy. I think that was exactly his, his phrase about it. I think John was paying Mark, I think it was $70,000 in 1988 to help train athletes at Foxcatcher. And so, I mean, that's, I'm just, I actually didn't do the math. Normally I do, normally I look it up, but I'm going to say that's, that's somewhere in the realm of 180 to $200,000 today in salary to just, to do something that you love doing. And that's train for wrestling yourself and then train other guys. But Mark would quickly say that John basically treated him as as his toy. He could do whatever he tell him whatever he wanted, say to do whatever he wanted, and this obviously didn't set well with Mark. And Mark was willing to go toe to toe with John over items to the point that John, you know, threatened Mark uh, that he was going to ruin his career. So Mark would leave Foxcatcher but was still dominating the 1988 Olympic trials. And during the early rounds, he lost to a much weaker opponent from Turkey. And he would later say that he purposely threw that match uh, in order to deny John the prestige of having Olympic medalists out of Foxcatcher. And this, I mean, this is how upset Mark was with the situation is I'm sure there was some talk behind the scenes going on that, if Mark won the 1988 Olympics, that there would be a victory for Foxcatcher because he had trained there prior to the Olympics. And so John was likely going to be bragging about how he produced an Olympic athlete, even though Mark had won in 1984 without the help of Foxcatcher. But it was just, it, it bothered Mark so much what happened to him at Foxcatcher that he was willing to throw this match so that he would would not meddle at these Olympics and not give John the the prestige or the pleasure of being able to say he, he trained an Olympic uh, medalist. And Mark would actually never wrestle again. Now, he did get involved in the early days of UFC and is still considered by many to be the best wrestler to ever compete in UFC. And the, again, these were the early days of UFC, like in the, the late 90s, like 96, 97. Uh, not... Not the UFC of today for sure, but uh, the, like I said, the, the early days. And he won, I think, a majority of his matches despite not having much of a background in in combat martial arts. Like I said, his background was purely a wrestler, but just his his strength, his determination, his everything. He went in with some of the best of the best fighters in the world and was able to beat them with limited training. So quite he was quite the athlete. But with Mark out of Foxcatcher, John turned to his brother Dave for help running the program. Dave accepted the offer and started training wrestlers at Foxcatcher in 1990. And Dave was considered an ambassador for the sport of wrestling and was friends with many of the, the top athletes in the sport. 
And John's eccentric ways had made recruiting new wrestlers to the program extremely difficult after Mark left. But Dave was a legend, and young wrestlers were willing to put up with John to spend time training with Dave. So this was a big deal, John being able to get Dave to come there. Because after his falling out with Mark, and Mark had such a celebrity status is one way to say it, but just he had so much respect from the wrestling community that I'm sure when he left Foxcatcher and threw that Olympic match to snub John, it really made it difficult for wrestlers to say, you know, despite getting paid and having access to the best facilities, if Mark wasn't happy at Foxcatcher, maybe I shouldn't go there. And I'm sure there was a lot of talk behind closed doors about what was going on at Foxcatcher, how John treated people. But Dave, I think, just wanted to do what was best for USA Wrestling at the time. And what was best for USA Wrestling was to have Foxcatcher running at at its best because when it was, the athletes coming out of there were, were winning at high levels. And so Dave was willing to put up with, with John in an effort to to further wrestling to make it to make it even better in in america and dave would do his best to keep john in check he would tell he would tell john when he was, john was having psychotic episodes and did his best to keep the daily operation running and this was despite john making things difficult by doing things like removing the treadmills from the training areas because he thought they were turning back time and then John would kick out wrestlers for either minor infractions or in one case because they were black. So Dave's trying to keep this Olympic wrestler factory running here at Foxcatcher and the person that's making it most difficult is John. But Dave apparently is basically the only person in the country that could have kept this, this operation running. And as 1996 approached, John was getting worse by the day. Uh, He pulled a gun on one of the wrestlers and ordered them off the farm, and the wrestler was able to talk John down before leaving the farm and going to the police to report the incident. And there wasn't much more in regards to what was done with, with that incident, but what we do know is that on January 26, 1996, at 2 p.m., John grabbed a 44 Magnum, ordered his security consultant, a man named Patrick Goodale, to drive him to Dave's house. They pulled into Dave's driveway where Dave was working in his car and Dave walked down to greet them with a smile and said hi boss with a friendly wave. John got out of the car and said something to the effect of do you have a problem with me and then pointed the gun at Dave and pulled the trigger three times. Dave died in his driveway with his wife Nancy holding him. While Patrick, the security consultant, leapt from the car and pulled his own gun on John. But John used the opportunity to get in the driver's seat of the car and drove back to the estate. Police responded to the scene of the shooting and learned what had happened and drove to the estate. And for two days, John hid out in his estate. And it was said he had a security room or a panic room in the estate and he had enough food and water in this room to last three months. But because it was January, the police turned off gas to the home and eventually John got so cold that he decided to risk going outside to try to turn it back on the heat. And this is something he'd been negotiating over the phone with the police and talking with his lawyers for the whole of the two days that he was uh, had barricaded himself inside this house. And the 
negotiator actually convinced him. He was saying he was getting cold and he wanted to go outside and check the heater and he made them promise they weren't going to arrest him. And they promised him that, but as soon as he stepped outside, they all jumped out and, and arrested him anyway. And nine months later, it was ruled that he was not competent to stand trial and was ordered to be treated at a secure mental health facility until he could participate in his own defense. And the ruling found that John was an unmedicated, paranoid schizophrenic who suffered from a complete loss of reality. And the judge ordered that he be reevaluated every 90 days until he could participate in his own defense. And we've, we've talked about this before. There's a big difference between being found not competent to stand trial and being found mentally insane. And we're going to talk about what what ruling is or what uh, conviction he's actually going to get down the road here. Uh, but in order for somebody to even participate in their own defense, they have to at least have some grasp of reality. They have to understand what is going on around them so that when their lawyers give them advice, such as, we want you to take the stand in your own defense, or do you want to plead the fifth, or you know, do you want to plead guilty? Here's the, the, the guilty plea bargain that, that they're offering us. Is this something you want to go with? Before somebody can accept any of that or even work with their lawyers, it has to first be proven that they actually understand what's going on. And he was in such a state of paranoid psychosis that he had no grasp of reality at that point and the judge wanted him to get to a secure medical facility get start getting treated for his paranoid schizophrenia so that with proper medication the hope is that he could get to a point where he would understand a what he had done and b what he was facing from the courts and make proper decisions and so during his first re-examination in early 1997 john was found competent to stand trial the trial would revolve around two things, John's mental health and outside influences on his decision-making. And the defense would argue that John was suffering from severe symptoms of his paranoid schizophrenia and was not aware of his actions that day. And they would also claim that this security consultant of his had convinced him that Dave Schultz was working against him. Now, nothing I could find from the source material backed that up to any degree. It, it was one of those, I guess, potential one of those Hail Marys where they were just trying to shift blame and make it sound as if this Patrick took advantage of John's mental state and, and had him killed Dave. But there was, as far as I could read in the source material, there was no animosity between Patrick and Dave. And, and in reality... Patrick having John kill Dave does nothing for him, actually hurts him, because obviously John is going to go to prison, and so he's going to lose this lucrative employment that he has with his boss if he makes his boss kill somebody. Now, if it was that there was documented animosity between the two of them, and he had convinced one of his own security workers, uh, the this, this security consultant had convinced another security worker to kill Dave. Yeah, I could see that. I could get that. But ordering your boss, who's the one who's writing out your, your ridiculous security consultant checks to kill a guy that you don't have animosity to doesn't, to me, seem like a great defense. 
And the prosecution would actually argue that John drove back to his house and barricaded himself inside and asked to talk to his lawyers, which showed he knew right from wrong and didn't meet the criteria of not guilty by reason of insanity. And this is something we've mentioned in the past. The monotonous rule, the big thing that most states use for insanity is whether or not the person knew right from wrong at the time they committed the crime. So if you've got, we've used these examples in the past, if the person who commits the crime turns around and acts like they haven't done anything wrong, that what they did, you know, they, they killed an antichrist to save the world. So they just, you know, either turn themselves in right away to just say, you know, I, I've, I've done this, but I did it for the, for the betterment of society. You could argue that the, that person committed a crime without knowledge that what they did was right or wrong whereas he's made several steps afterwards he drove himself to his home barricaded himself inside wanted to talk to lawyers these are all something that somebody knows they did something wrong would do and so that's what the prosecution is going to say is he knew right from wrong he knew after he killed dave that he had done something wrong his actions proved that so he's not he was not insane at the time that he did what he did even though he was mentally ill and witnesses during the trial would speak about John's increased paranoia after his mother's death, and it was also said to have been abusing cocaine and alcohol throughout the 80s and 90s. And the prosecution admitted that John had paranoid delusions, but claimed he was in his right mind and just angry with Dave when he shot him. The defense expert stated that John's delusions extended into every part of his life and the killing was part of his mental illness. So this trial came down a lot to, obviously, the the mental state that he was in when he asked his security consultant to drive him to Dave's house and pull that trigger. And there's a big difference between being angry with somebody and having mental illness influence it and being having a complete loss of reality. You know, had he afterwards killed Dave and said, like as I mentioned before, Dave is the Antichrist he was going to bring about the apocalypse i needed to kill him is my i was put on this earth to do this and and just surrendered to police in the driveway or acted like it wasn't a big deal then i think you have a pretty good not guilty by reason of insanity case however you can have a mental illness you can still understand right from wrong you can still do something you know you shouldn't have done and even though the mental illness is going to play a part in it it, it doesn't absolve you completely. And after several weeks of trial, this is what the jury decided. They found that John DuPont was guilty, but mentally ill. And this is different than not guilty by reason of insanity. And it's more or less as a murder conviction, but without the element of intent. So the way Pennsylvania law has is they have a murder one, which is your premeditated murder. I want to kill somebody. I make efforts go through follow out my plan kill somebody then you have your murder two which is your crime of passion murder that's the i know i'm going to kill somebody but i'm so overwhelmed by my emotions that i do it anyway and then you have in this case it's a murder three charge and that's where there's not intent and there's a lot of these fall into whether it be accidental deaths or like i said in this case where it really can't be proven if he knew exactly what he was doing when he pulled the trigger, but he knew it was wrong. But at the same time, he was influenced so strongly by his mental illness that 
he went through with it anyway. And so instead of being found guilty of one of the higher crimes of murder, he's found guilty of this murder three charge. And the maximum sentence for such a crime was 40 years. And John was sentenced to 13 to 30 years by the judge. And his lawyers would go on to appeal the conviction on several grounds. And the case went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court in 2000, but his conviction was upheld. And Nancy Schultz, Dave's wife, filed a wrongful death suit against John, and it settled for an undisclosed amount. And John DuPont was eligible for parole on January 29, 2009, uh, for the first time in which he was denied. And he died while incarcerated on December 9, 2009, from COPD. And at the time of his death, his net worth was estimated to be around half a billion dollars, and his will stated that 80% of his wealth wealth was to be given to Bulgarian wrestler Valentin Yordanov, an Olympic wrestler who had trained at Foxcatcher, and the other 20% was to be donated to a charity that protects Pacific birds. Uh, relatives of John, including a niece and a nephew, challenged the legitimacy of the will, stating it was written when he was in poor mental health and believed he was a combination of Jesus Christ, the Dalai Lama, and a Russian Tsar. And the challenge was denied at multiple levels, and not because of the mental health challenge part of it, but basically it was because the plaintiffs did not have standing to prove they were harmed by the will. And this was basically the judge saying, you weren't part of an original will that was changed during the time he had these mental illnesses and before his death. So they couldn't not prove that they would have been the ones to inherit the money, and therefore the validity of the will was not theirs to challenge. So this kind of came down to... It wasn't that the judges didn't believe that John wasn't in his right mind when he gave all this money away to this Bulgarian wrestler. I'm sure the judges thought this guy was was mentally ill at the time of this will, which normally would nullify the will. But because he didn't have any children and the wills before, it wasn't like he had wills all the way up until right before he died, stating that this niece and nephew were supposed to get all the money. It, likely his will would have just gone to probate and then it would have been up to a judge to decide who gets the money. So if there is any will and there's nobody that really is going to challenge the legitimacy of it that would have for sure received that money, the judges kind of just went, I guess the guy can be nuts and give the money to whoever he wants because nobody was actually supposed to be getting the money. But there are several documentaries on the case and a 2014 movie starring Steve Carell as John uh, DuPont and Channing Tatum and Mark Ruffalo as Mark and Dave Schultz. And this was based on the true story of Foxcatcher and that's the name of the movie. Uh, Mark Schultz would actually be extremely upset when the movie came out because supposedly the movie implies there was a sexual relationship between Mark and John that Mark claims is 100% fabricated and if that's true it definitely adds salt to the wound because they're basically implying that he was in love with the man who eventually would kill his brother and if it's not true i mean that's again it's 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 definitely salt on the wound uh for for mark uh i actually hadn't seen this movie apparently steve carell was nominated for an academy award for his portrayal of john dupont and i purposely have haven't watched the movie even though i'm intrigued to watch it now just because based on the true story whether it's things like this with mark and and john supposedly having a relationship the artistic liberties that sometimes directors or 
screenwriters or whatever you want to say take when it comes to somebody's based on a true story it, it sometimes ruins the entire story if it's if there's parts of it that are are not true uh that really throw the whole thing off but i'm still potentially interested to watch it because i think it'd be interesting to see how somebody else approaches this entire kind of crazy story uh, but that is it for the strange and sad true crime story of Foxcatcher and John DuPont and Dave Schultz. And, and again, normally when it's uh, one of these cases with mental illness and crime, we're usually talking about somebody who doesn't have access to mental health uh, help. It's somebody who's homeless or somebody of low income uh, standing that is dealing with are struggling with mental illness and and doesn't have the resources can't get themselves to a hospital can't pay for the medications uh, or the constant adjustments that need to happen these medications to to feel okay and that's not the case here what's what's what really made this case interesting to me is we have this guy who's one of the wealthiest guys in the world slipping into madness and because he was just so used to just writing checks to to either buy friendship, to buy loyalty, to buy whatever, uh, nobody really challenged him. Uh, and, and there was nobody in his life that was really there to, to tell him that he needed to get help. And nobody was going to force him to get help. And unfortunately, that, that ended up resulting in somebody's murder. But... That's it for today, guys. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for future episodes and feel free to write me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions at gmail.com. You can also find me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions on Facebook and support me via Patreon at TrueBlueCrimeProductions. That's it for today, guys. Thanks for listening. Talk to you later. Goodbye.